gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the Stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee Stud. The Tennessee Stud. You will learn that name, you will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Please welcome the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller, and your host, Jeff Maldron. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Ron Fuller's Studcast. I am Jeff Maldron, and it is a pleasure to be with you once again as the Tennessee stud takes us down that road of wrestling history. And now, the man of the hour, the Tennessee stud himself, Ron Fuller. Ron, how you doing today? I'm doing great, Jeff. Great to be here. Uh, look forward to it today. Got old Lightning saddled up and pretty well ready to go. This is, we got a pretty long ride today. We're going to cover a Friday, February 13th, 1976 card in Knoxville. It's at Silver Highway Park again. Uh, and it's kind of unusual because uh, neither the Coliseum nor the Chihuahua Park Indoor Arena was available on the normal Sunday. So we've got to take a Friday night. Uh, we're skipping a basically a Sunday and uh, catching up on the following Friday night. So it's been uh, quite a few days, close to 14 days since they've had a match at this point. Uh, we're going to also take a close look at the dramatic success of that Ron Wright, Don Carson superstar angle. Kind of just really exploded business. Our photo for this stud cast is a picture of Ron Wright with that busted eye. So uh, fans, when you get uh, ready to take that stud cast, or wherever you pick yours up at, you'll you'll see that photo of Ron Wright just after he had his eye busted. Uh, we'll talk about how and why an angle sometimes gets over better than others uh, by simply surprising everyone. It suddenly starts to fill buildings and how that can lead to dramatic changes in the direction of an entire territory. And that's basically what happened with this particular angle. And we're also going to talk about the controversial next step in that angle. And that's going to be coming. We'll get more into that next week. But uh, that's something that's never been done before, too, anywhere else in the sport. So I kind of come up with another new idea. Uh, basically, Carson's going to run some ads in the newspapers, actual newspapers in Johnson City and in Knoxville, offering $500 to anyone that can black his other eye. <laughs> he doesn't say just wrestlers. He just says anybody. So, you know, Ron Wright had to be kind of careful about uh, just being around everybody in the, right after these ads come out. Uh, we're going to cover the TV, the cities run, uh, the crowds, and the payoffs for that week of February 8th, basically 1976. And at the end of the studcast, we're going to sit under the learning tree. And to answer uh, the question, basically, what was the worst ride I was ever in? So, I think, like I say, we've got a, quite a ride in front of us today. So, uh, let's get rolling. Uh, We'll start with the second Knoxville card in February of 1976. It's on Friday night, the 13th of February. 
Uh, most every Knoxville event in the winter, obviously, was on Sunday afternoon, but this card's at 8.30 on Friday night. The opening match, Les Thatcher against Tony Peters. There were two tag teams on this night. The Red Hot Superstars, who were just that at this point after uh, busting Wright's eye, and then they're in a tag for a change. It's unusual. They've been in single matches for about four weeks straight. They're in a tag against Jimmy Golden and Charlie Cook. Darn good team right there. Southeastern Championship match with no DQ clause between the new champion, Don Carson, and Ron Wright. The main event was for the Tennessee Tag Championship, and uh, it's a handicap match. It's two against three. Rob and I are going to be against Austin, Malone, and Homer Odell. Very unusual. Uh, don't see that very much in tag situations, but I thought we'd throw that into this card and, uh, and just see where it'd take us. So before we talk about the TV promoting this card, I'd like to discuss the angle from the TV the week before that got such fantastic heat. It all began with Carson offering the superstars 500 to the man who would give Ron Wright a black eye or 500 each if they both did it. And at the end of that TV show, it started out with the beginning of the show, him making that offer to his, his superstars. And, uh, and by the end of the show, they definitely did it. And they not only blacked his eye, but they busted it the hard way. The fact that it happened on the set on TV could be heard as well as seen. And it gave it even more impact because it was on TV. I knew as I watched it, it was really getting over. Uh, the sellout the next afternoon told me just how much it got over. Superstars of the team had only been in Southeastern for five weeks. Pretty amazing. And only one of those five that they wrestled as a team. They were very talented. But an angle like this one, with a hard way and all the talk that follows something like that, shoved them right into the limelight. Carson already had great heat. But having these two do his dirty work spread that heat amongst the three of them. As a booker, you never know what an angle was, is going to do for business. Sir. I expected it would get heat, but I never expected to reach a point that it did. It was so powerful that I was almost forced to move them as a team into the top spot as tag champions, you know, because Norvell and Malone, they had some heat. And Homer had even more heat than they did, but not like what had happened overnight with the superstars. Uh, they just catapulted those guys into the spot that they should naturally be in, and pretty soon is going to be the champions. TV show since it started on WBR had made me 10 times more recognizable in the past seven months than I was in the previous seven months when it was on the WTVK station at the top of the mountain, the one that had no signal, and Big Jim Hess on it. Uh, fans were talking about what happened you know, with this Carson and Superstar attack everywhere I went. Uh, even people I knew that I didn't know watched the TV show mentioned it. And that in itself, the fact that they were closet fans, I'm going to call them closet fans, that because they didn't say they were fans, but knew what was going on after each program, let me know they were definitely uh, watching the program and Southeastern was definitely headed in the right direction. Carson and Dunn, good friends of mine. And we spent uh, two months together in Australia in 1973, Rossi. They were excited about the results of the hard way. And we spent a lot of time, Carson Dunn and I, talking about how we could get another shot of heat it was always good to see guys get into the program you were setting up for them. As a booker, you wanted those guys to really like what you were going to do for them. You wanted to tell them about it because when you did, it did get them excited. And the smart wrestlers didn't just show up every night just and take orders. 
smart ones were always thinking about things and they, they came off for an ideas. Uh, Carson Dunn and Baxter between the three of those guys had a combined 50 years of experience in wrestling. They could have each been a booker somewhere. I mean, they all had the talents for it and they, they really got involved in the angles they were in and they liked to come with the uh, ideas of their own. And I love bouncing things off of. Sometimes you find out a lot of things that way. You know, you just say, hey, I've got, to, how about, this? how about we do this? And then they, they, they either go, yeah, or no, or, or they go, hey, wait, what if you did this? So that's where I kind of got the idea to do something that had never been done before in the sport. I, w- I decided, you know, I talked to him. I said, what if we ran ads in the two newspapers, the two major newspapers in the bigger markets we're in, in the Tri-Cities and up in, in the Knoxville area? And uh, we offer another $500 bounty to anyone who can black run right to other eye. So we're going to talk more about that concept next week. But uh, it was something that we had in the works. And we're going to add it to this angle that's just kind of taken off. Talk about the TV on Saturday, February 7th that promoted this card on Friday night, following Friday night, February 13th. And I was reminded by the sales manager at WBIR. That's the big station that was on at this point. His name was Lynn Lepper, that February was rating periods again. Okay. And uh, in fact, it was considered the most important rating month of the entire year. All four Saturdays in February are going to be show up in the Arbitron and the Nielsen rating books. They're going to come out the following month in March. Wintertime audience was the best for TV stations across the country. That tremendous TV show of the week before, the one in which Wright got his eye busted by the Two superstars right at the desk on the set that led perfectly to the four February Saturdays that are going to be uh, tallied in this ratings book beginning. So this Saturday, TV, February 7th, is going to be the first of those four Saturdays in a row to be rated. I decided to do something special, obviously, for the first time ever on Southeastern TV. I'm going to have three tag matches in one show. Then for real impact, one of those tags is going to be a six-man tag, the first ever on Southeastern TV. To make sure we got as much out of this as possible, we uh, opened the TV with that six-man tag. And, uh, you know, and it really uh, popped them right off. Because the card was following Friday, featured a handicap match with Rob and I against Austin Malone and Homer Odell. The three of them were in this match. Uh, Phil Rainian introduced their opponents, Rick Connors, Rocky Smith, and Tommy Gilbert. And uh, when the Tennessee Tag Champions and Homer appeared in the studio, I could tell it was going to be a great TV just by the way that studio crowd reacted. And those studio crowds at this point are reacting more and more every program. Fans seemed to be on fire that day from the very beginning. The Odell, the Homer Odell group, let's call them, won the match. And toward the end of it, Austin and Malone pummeled Rick Connors. Then they tagged in Homer for the first time that he had been in the ring, and Homer came in and made the most of it. He slammed uh, Connors, and he suplexed. And uh, if he ended up beating him, he put his foot on his chest and stood up over the top of him and had to rep Count Connors out. Three winners went to the set with less, and they waited for the two-minute commercial break. Studio crowd never stopped booing them during this commercial break. They were just really, really into the show at this point. When the red light came on for the interview, the studio fans, they had grown accustomed to our format. They knew when they saw those red lights come on the camera that the uh, show was back on. 
and they just uh, increased the booing they were doing. It was kind of like they knew they were part of the program. Normally, Homer, he wanted all over the interview. They all three got a chance to talk that day, but he did the last part. He bragged about how Rob and I had two straight shot as the champions, and we couldn't beat him. Then he added, how in the world did we expect to beat him with him also being in the ring? Uh, he bragged about what fans he had just seen, what fans had seen him do just a second ago, a few minutes ago with Rick Connors. And he guaranteed the following Friday he was going to be standing on one of our chests, just like he did with Connors when the bell rang. The fans made it clear what they thought about their comments. Uh, was no doubt uh, they didn't like the concept. Second match was Robert and I against Jerry Myatt and Don Lambert. They were introduced in the ring first. And then when we arrived in the studio, we obviously got a good ovation. We took care of business pretty quick and used that devastating backdrop into a death drop finish that we showcased a couple of TVs before. The fans loved that finish. Uh, and I did too, because when you watch that finish back, it just looked like uh, when you dropped that guy on his head that uh, he couldn't, there was no way he was going to get up. Uh, then we went straight to the desk to watch our tag match from the week before with Austin and Malone. Uh, on the previous Sunday, that match was Tennessee Tag Championship match with a no DQ clause. And Homer had got his team disqualified the week before on purpose to save their belts. Uh, in this match we were watching, uh, since it was no DQ, he really got involved in this one and used his metal helmet to get his boys the victory. Uh, he actually stuck his head between the ropes when the referee wasn't looking. Uh, one of the guys drew the referee to them, and he stuck his head in and and the other one ran his head, Rob's head, into that helmet that uh, Homer wore. And uh, it was a bona fide uh, Army helmet, and I'm sure it didn't feel good for old Rob, and they got the win that way. Studio fans reacted to the finish they were seeing, obviously, on the studio monitors. There were three monitors in the studio. And Les threw it to a commercial break, and Rob and I made an interview uh, after the commercial break when the red light came back on the camera. We talked about what pain Homer was as a manager. I mean, he was a pain in the rear. You did not know when he was going to get involved, but you knew he was going to get involved. And we had just watched him get involved in the, in the match previously, just a few minutes earlier. So we felt it was our best chance to win the titles would be to have him inside the ring where we could keep an eye on him. That way we knew exactly where he was. So this handicap match, that was two of us against the three of them is not really so much a handicap for us as it is for them. In our view, we, we thought that uh, Homer was the weak link of the three, obviously, and we could win the belts by beating Homer. That's easier than beating either Austin or Malone. So to us, that meant all we had to do was get Homer in the ring and take care of it. But we didn't have a handicap. But it being two on three, it was going to be their handicap is the way we looked at it. And uh, having the Homer in the ring was going to make it easier for us to win the championship. We couldn't wait for this match. It was going to be something that we were looking forward to. Studio audience, they kind of grasped the logic of the whole thing. Uh, and they obviously supported us at the end of it with the cheers. Personality profile was, again, Ron Wright. And done live before the studio audience again. Uh, Ron still had the stitches over his eye, and his eye was now at this point black. And, uh, you know, that's the same spot where they had busted him the week before, and and he didn't have the stitches covered up. He had no tape on him. And uh, so during the profile, I'm upstairs in the control room. I had Kincaid get shots of close-ups 
of his face. And every time he did, those stitches were pretty plain. It was about 12 or 13 stitches or so. And uh, every fan out there was watching TV could see it. It was a great way to prove what happened the week before was real. I mean, there was no denying that, hey, there's a real stitches in his head. We'd pre-produced for this personality profile a, a short montage segment, which we hadn't done before, of what had happened the entire Saturday before. It highlighted the events leading up to the busted eye, and it gave Les and Ron an opportunity to talk over it as the entire story developed. The montage contained the offer of money Carson made during the interview uh, to the superstars. If they would black Ron Wright's eye, it continued with parts of the finish of Ron Wright's match in which Carson came down to the ring, got involved, and uh, Wright got a hold of him and was banging his gloved hand on the ring apron, and this superstar showed up. And they drug him over to the set and busted his eye right on the set. Uh, it was a very effective segment, and it was spellbinding to watch the pieces of the angle. Les described it as the most violent attack he had ever seen on a TV show. And, you know, when I th thought about it, he was probably right about that. I mean, I'd been in Florida and a lot of places, and I'd seen some pretty heavy angles, but I don't ever remember seeing one that took place uh, a hard way right on the desk of the commentator. So uh, Ron promised to get his belt back the following Friday night. Fans in the studio were basically an integral part of the entire five minutes, and that added a great deal to what was already a pretty much a super profile. As soon as the profile ended, Bill Rainey introduced DeVoy Brunson and Greg Peterson. Then the superstars entered the studio for their first tag on TV in four weeks. They had not been doing a lot of tag matches. The crowd exploded after having just watched what these two had done during the profile. Greg Peterson was a great little worker. I don't know how many fans are, are familiar with Greg Peterson. He's an old-timer, uh, basically out of the South. He was out of Minnesota originally. He worked for my dad in Memphis in the late 50s and early 60s. Was a star there. Very small guy, but a tremendous talent in the ring. And he had had hundreds of matches with both Dick Dunn and with Tarzan Baxter. So, you know, he, they, they were no strangers to him. They were all actually from the same part of the country. They, they were all born and raised in the southeastern part of Alabama. So these superstars were now beginning a new role in southeastern as part of the, one of the best angles yet. They'd been in single matches for six straight weeks or so at the bottom of the card, but Ron Wright's eye changed all of that. They were beginning a stretch of tag matches that's going to lead them to the first ever tag team championship just about one month later. They destroyed their opponents in this match, to be quite blunt about it. They were veteran talents, and, and they looked it in this match. And now was their time to shine, and they knew it. And uh, they also knew how to take advantage of the opportunity. And they won the match, applying Boston Crabs on both opponents at the same time for a very rare double submission win. You just don't see that type of thing back in those days much, and sure don't see it anymore. Uh, they went to the set with Les, and they began a two-minute interview by saying how proud they were to be friends of Don Carson, to have been able to bust a hillbilly's eye for him. <laughs> the fans hated that, but uh, I got a little laugh out of it up in the control room. They, they bragged about now getting their chance to show why their name was the Superstars, why they were called Superstars. Everybody's going to know from here on out they're going to be in tag matches. They said how sorry they were in advance 
for hurting either Jimmy Golden or Charlie Cook's back the next Friday night. And maybe both of them are going to get hurt and they're Boston and they're super crabs. They started calling their finish, not the Boston crab, but the super crab. So superstar number two reminded fans how they had carried Mike Stallings out of the building more than a month earlier from his Boston crab and how that punk still wasn't back wrestling. He still wasn't healthy. So, uh, you know, they, they were really making a strong point about that move, which is an extremely painful move, even if you are not really putting pressure on, is still a very, very painful move. Less than through the interview to Studio B, we're going to do one of those split interviews, and Jimmy Golden and Charlie Cook are in the Studio B. Golden and Cook put their opponents over by saying that, you know, these superstars as a team are one of the best in the world. They're, you know, they're not just crummy guys that just happen to do something horrible on TV, that they have real, real talent. They said it wasn't going to keep them from taking advantage of a team that had not had a match together for more than a month. So they highlighted the fact that the superstars had not been wrestling as a tag team. And uh, there is a little bit of that. Uh, you know, you, 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 once you are steadily working with the partner, your, your act is better and your matches are better. So when they finished, uh, superstar number one finished the interview. And he asked Golden and Cook which one of them wanted to have an eye like Ron Wright, which is a great way to end the interview. Basically, uh, we're not going to just hurt your backs, but we may bust one of you guys' eyes just like we did right. I got a quick two-part question for you, if you will. Okay. Uh, one of the things you mentioned last week was when you were doing the angle with Ron Wright near the uh, the announcer's desk, you, you kind of, maybe it was in a joking fashion, you said, I kind of hope that the people that own the TV station weren't watching because it was such a violent angle. Just theoretically, if they had been watching and came to you and said, yeah, we had a real problem with what you did, how do you work that out with the TV studio? Well, I've had it happen before, you know, uh, and that's why I had some current concern about it. You got to tone your stuff back. I mean, if, if they come to you, it's their television station. It's not my TV station. They know what they want to see on it. And my job is to give them the best product I can, but not to take it overboard. Uh, this really kind of got overboard. I didn't expect he was going to get his eye busted, to be honest with you. I just wanted them to black his eye. And it ended up, they busted his eye. Uh, so it was a surprise to me when all that blood was there. But, uh, you know, thank goodness they weren't watching. Okay, second part of the question. In the wrestling business, there is what is called hot-shotting, okay, where, where you're, you're basically doing all these different, throwing everything against the wall and seeing what sticks. So when you have your time, when the TV ratings are coming in, obviously you want to do something, uh, you know, and, and – I'm not saying what you did with Ron Wright was hot shotting, but you want to you want to create an angle that's going to get a TV audience that when those ratings come out, well, that's going to be shown there. It's going to be very impressive. What is the danger as a promoter in doing too much? You know, where yeah, your ratings are great, but then after that, you kind of lose the audience because you don't have anywhere else to go. Well, a lot of guys do that. Uh, a lot of bookers that aren't very sharp they back themselves into that corner and uh, they can't figure out how to get out of it. They do too much. And then, you know, when business starts to drop, what do I do now? But I, I was I was always a thinker as a booker. I, I was thinking not just about the next week and uh, two weeks ahead or three weeks ahead. Sometimes I would think as far as we did an angle, Bob Armstrong and I in Southeastern and Mobile in 1982, that that was going to culminate seven months later. So, you know, I mean, we're 
I'm, I'm looking way ahead. So uh, I have an idea of where we're going and what I'm going to be doing after that was going to be maybe even better than that. So, uh, and I think, as you said, Ron, I think that's what a smart booker or a smart promoter does. So it's okay. What was the last match on the show? Well, the last match on the show was a very young Jerry Stubbs in the ring and he was being announced. Uh, it was one of his first matches on in Southeastern, uh, on TV. And when that, uh, you know, when they ended with that introduction then Don Carson came around the corner into the studio wearing nothing but a big smile and his Southeastern championship belt. Uh, and he was followed by the two superstars, and they were carrying his big Southeastern TV championship trophy. He had all the goods at this point. He's the big man at this point, and they're just uh, basically like his two of cronies following along behind, taking care of business for him. The crowd responded, obviously, with a roar of boos, man. And Carson made quick work of Stubbs. Stubbs is young at this point, and Carson is over and wanting to get more over. So uh, he made quick work of him and then sat down at the set and he was followed by the superstars. Carson took his belt and laid it across the front of the desk and the superstars put that big old huge Southeastern TV trophy on the desk right between Carson and Les, basically. And they stood, Carson sat down at the seat and the two superstars stood up behind him. And Carson turned to Les right off and he asked him to give him give him back the money Carson had given him earlier before he went in the ring to wrestle. So, you know, and I'm upstairs, I'm like, what, what is he talking about? What kind of money? So Les hands him some cash and uh, Carson stood up and right there in front of the television audience and the TV cameras, he asked the two superstars to hold their hands out. And he had a handful of hundred dollar bills and he started counting out those hundreds, 500, Five in each one of them's hands, $500 each. And uh, then uh, Carson contended to count, uh, but Les started protesting about, hey, you know, I don't want you paying off your, your thugs here, you know, at my set. Uh, he didn't like the idea that Carson's going to pay him off. Uh, obviously, Les didn't know what Carson was going to do with that cash when he gave it back to Carson. So, you know, Carson said, uh, if he found it disgusting, he, it'd be fine if he, if he wanted to leave the set. That'd be fine. So Les didn't leave the set, obviously, but he shook his head. You could tell he was upset with uh, Carson doing this uh, in the manner that he did. And Carson started in on his opponent the next Friday night. And his first title defense, there was going to be his first title defense against the one-eyed hillbilly, Ron Wright. And that's what he called him now, the one-eyed hillbilly. Uh, he said he was pleased that it was a no DQ match and he wanted all of his title matches to be no DQ because he could then use his peanut butter as much as he wanted to. Uh, so he alluded to a special announcement he would be making on next week's show. He didn't say what it was, but he got up and the superstars wrapped up his Southeastern belt around his waist. Like he was gorgeous George and they were his valets or whatever. And, uh, you know, he really had him looking like a cronies for him, for sure. And uh, and then they buckled it for him. So then he shook his fist. Carson shook his fist at the crowd, and they screamed something about, uh, you better shut up or I'll have my superstars black all of y'all's eyes. And he was really enjoying himself. About to leave the set when Les said, uh, hey, Mr. Carson, uh, I'm glad you brought that Southeastern uh, TV trophy out here today. And Carson smiled at him, and, you know, he he looked at him and said, well, thank you, Les. You know, that's really nice of you. And uh, and then he started to leave. And, and the two superstars grabbed the trophy, and they were ready to leave. And 
And then uh, Les reached over and grabbed him by the arm. Uh, and he, he said, uh, hey, hey uh, come back here. Come back here. And uh, so they all kind of came back to the disc. And uh, so Les says, uh, I'll take that trophy now. And uh, and they're all three kind of quieted. They're just stunned. Like, what the heck's going on? So they handed it to Les. And Les said, you know, the Southeast promoters want you, Don Carson, to defend this. Southeastern TV championship next week, right here on TV. And I'll just hang on to the trophy until next week. Carson kind of looked a little confused. And then he, you could tell that he didn't want to sell for less. So he, he finally smiled and he said, well, uh, who they want me to defend it against? And Les says, Ron Wright. And oh, the TV audience exploded, man. And, uh, and then Les took the trophy and he just walked off the set and they hadn't closed the segment out, and the three of them were just screaming like crazy and in the microphone, and that's the way the, that segment ended. Uh, Les was gone with the trophy, and they're there screaming about Ron Wright, and how's this happening? What's going on here? And uh, So it was a, pretty much a great ending to another classic show. Okay, now let's take a break here and go to David Summers as he talks about Super Stud Cast number 26, which is currently out, part one as Ron has an interview with his very first Lord Humongous, Jeff Van Camp. Super Studcast are all about different types of wrestlers and wrestling topics. The three-hour Super Number 26 is all about two great stars, but much more. It is also about a gimmick Ron envisioned that became one of the top five gimmicks in all of wrestling history. At tmstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. These two stars will both be live separately on this tremendous Super Studcast because they both were the man behind the mask, the shocking Lord Humongous. The rest of America missed out as fans all over the South, from the southeastern continental area to the Memphis Territory, were horrified by the sight of the Lord Humongous, Sid Vicious in Memphis, and Jeff Van Camp in southeastern continental. Fantastic Super Studcast number 26, part one, with Jeff Van Camp is now available. Sid Vicious will join Ron for part two on Tuesday, September 25th at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast, only two ninety nine. Saddle up for two stars, one fantastic gimmick, and how it felt to be the Lord Humongous. Okay, Ron, before we go to our next segment, I had a question that uh, I brought up to you before we started recording that I thought might make an interesting topic, even though it's sort of out of the timeline a little bit. Uh, recently uh, was the anniversary of the death of uh, Buzz Sawyer, and it asked you if Buzz had ever worked for you. And, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to bring up Buzz is because, you know, Buzz, I don't think anyone would argue was a guy that was really, really talented in the ring, but certainly outside the ring. Uh, he was a man that uh, I know had anger issues. He was a bit of a bully. I think that's being very kind. He was also known to perhaps have some substance abuse issues. So as a promoter, Ron Fuller, tell me when you have a guy who is supremely talented in the ring, but maybe just such a headache outside of the ring. How, how do you deal with that as a promoter? Well, it depends on how talented he is. I mean, uh, if a guy's just uh, somewhat talented and his his problems uh, are so overpower the uh, his ability in the ring, then I I never kept him. I, I would let those type of guys go. Uh, but there were certain guys, and Buzz was one of those guys. Buzz worked some for me. He didn't work a whole lot of times for me, but he did work some matches for Southeastern. And uh, Buzz was so talented in the ring, he just about had to look over it. Uh, another guy that comes to mind instantly when you bring up something like this is uh, the Mongolian stomper, Archie Goldie. 
Stomper was difficult. Uh, that That's putting it politely, I guess. Uh, and he was hard to get along with. Bookers didn't like working with him. Uh, some guys in territories didn't like him. And he came to me with in Southeastern about 19, late 76, early 77, and just exploded the territory. And he fell in love with it. And I had, I never had any problems with him, you know, and I, but I'd heard all of these horrible things about him that you're not going to be able to keep him and, and you're not going to be able to deal with him. But if a guy is m- tremendously talented and then you can't figure out how to use him, I mean, that's a pitiful thing there. So, you know, I was always fairly easy to work with guys and then they, I had a pretty decent reputation guys that couldn't, get along with other guys. I I managed to get along with them most of the time. And that was the case with Archie. I kept Archie. Archie never left. In fact, he never, I don't believe he ever worked for anybody uh, until I shut down uh, Continental in the late 85. Actually in 88, he worked for me on USA wrestling. So, you know, he was my guy and, uh, you know, Buzz, I did not keep that long. But uh, Buzz was extremely talented, and if I had been in a position where I really needed that talent, I would have figured out a way to use him. Okay, so next round, where do we go? And I believe it's the results of the Knoxville card on February 13th, 1976. It was a Friday night. How'd that go? Uh, Les defeated Tony Peters in the first match, and the Superstars won over Jimmy Golden and Charlie Cook with a Boston Crab. There was their submission hole, and they put one on Charlie Cook and end up winning that match. In the handicap tag, we are going to do something in this one that's going to it's going to flabbergast the group out there watching. They're, in, they're totally unexpected. So it's the handicap tag with Rob and I against the three of them, Austin Malone and Omar Odell. It's for the Tennessee Tag Championship. It's an odd type of championship match, but it's two against the three of them. And we had this one in the bag at the end of it. We, we really beat up on Homer. We got Homer in the ring, and we did pretty much what we had talked about doing. But instead of having opportunity to, to beat him, we ended up throwing him over the top rope when the referee wasn't looking. Austin, at this point, was already bleeding and uh, down on the concrete floor just like Homer was. And then, uh, then we grabbed up the old 300-pound Butch Malone, and I shot him in the ropes. And Rob put that backdrop on him, and I caught him in midair, upside down, and I just dropped with him on his head. I paraded around the ring a little bit after him. Probably should have covered him a little quicker, but I didn't have any idea what was about to happen now. But I paraded around him and kind of did a little strut, and I covered him. And uh, before the referee had time to finish the count on him, the crowd went silent. I mean, they were totally shocked. And uh, all of a sudden, from nowhere, here appeared Tor Tanaka again. He arrived down at ringside. He entered the ring. He began to take both me and Rob apart, to be quite honest. We'd already had a 30-minute match against three opponents. We were pretty tired. And uh, he just he chopped us and, and, and <laughs> stomped us and kicked us. And uh, So now it was four on two instead of three on two. So both Rob and I end up pretty bloody and uh, before Homer put his foot and as, as Homer had promised on TV the week before he was going to beat us by standing over us and putting his foot on somebody's chest. And that's exactly what he did at the end of the match. Of course, the referee did not, you know, he disqualified them once uh, Tanaka got into the ring, 
But uh, Homer ended up putting his foot on Robert's chest and uh, put his hands in the air. And uh, then the four of them hugged each other and then they left the ring. Or at least they tried to leave the ring. Uh, The crowd was just, oh, they were just going crazy. And they started to close in on the ring about the time Tanaka got to the ring. So by the time they got ready to leave, they didn't have much floor to get on. I mean, the people were just pushed up against the apron of the ring. And But this finish was great. I mean, it, it came as such a surprise to everybody. It just left the crowd kind of in awe. When, when those guys made it past them and up to the dressing room, they just sat there with their mouths open like, uh, you know, it, it was one of those great things when you're a booker and you figure something that leaves that crowd stunned. They don't know. They're, they're like, they're trying to piece it together. Like, where did he come from? And I thought when he was here last time, he was going to be a good guy. I mean, they're asking themselves all these questions. So uh, here we were. Tanaka's back with the boys. Homer's got his crew back together, and they're stronger than ever. Uh, we're in a position to draw some big money now. I mean, we're really going to be rolling. In the second main event, which is a Southeastern title match with no DQ, uh, was Carson against Ron Wright. Carson wins again. Uh, the superstars showed up again at ringside, and they draw the ref's attention. But this time, Ron Wright gets both of them in the ring. <laughs> and he he gives them he gives them a Tennessee dog whooping. That's what he did. He gave them a good old Tennessee dog whooping, and then he just kept on and kept on and kept on and he kept on until Carson had a chance to load his glove, and he put him out. Uh, Carson hit him in the back of the head, and he never saw it coming, and and that's where he lost. He laid on his back, and uh, and they counted him out. Uh, superstars angle because it was no DQ. I mean, the ref had no choice. Uh, superstars angle. Kept its intensity. Uh, you know, this really was darn good finish again, and we filled the indoor arena on this night, on a Friday night. Now, I kept thinking, well, Sunday afternoons is the ticket that's really what's working, but we put 4000 in there again on a Friday night. It was the second week in a row. Okay, Ron, where else did you run that week, and uh, how were the crowds and the payoffs? Well, on Monday, we were in the, up on the Cumberland Plateau. It's a, it's a mountain that sits between Knoxville and Nashville. And we wrestled in a small city up there called Jamestown at their high school gym. It was our first time there. We almost sold the gym out on a Monday night. It's pretty hard uh, weeknights in these small cities to, to fill buildings up. But darn near, we darn near filled that one up the first time we were there, about 1,800 fans. Tuesday, we were back in Johnson City, and we pre-taped our TV show every Saturday. We we would show up around 10 in the morning. We would do some interviews. We would not start to record the show usually until about uh, 11, 11.30. And uh, then once we recorded it, it would show back in Knoxville at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. But then they would take that tape the following Monday, two days after the TV show, and they would send that tape to the other market that we were in, to the Johnson City television station, which was WJHL in Johnson City. So this tape, that the one where Ron Wright got his eye busted uh, and where, uh, you know, he's all bloody and, uh, you know, that tremendous television show, it's going to arrive in Johnson City and it's going to show on Saturday. So that Tuesday, a couple of days after that tape show, uh, we're going to fill up for the first time ever the building in Johnson City. So we added, uh, and as we add more stations, uh, you know, and every booker had to deal with this. Uh, that's the way things, it was called bicycling your tapes. And every wrestling company would have a home that they would produce the tape in. Let's just take Florida as an example. 
down there at the uh, old sportatorium. They would tape those programs, and then the first week, they'd send it out to Miami. And that show then is in Miami, and Miami would ship it to uh, Jacksonville. And Jacksonville would air it and ship it to Tallahassee. And uh, so the booker needed to know where this show, what show was being shown in each market to take full advantage of them. And uh, so we are not big enough at this point. We only have JHL, but we're going to have many stations before this thing is all over. And uh, this tape showed in Johnson City. We had the matches in that building, and it was the first time we'd ever sold out there uh, because Ron Wright was over there. It was his home. He was from Kingsport, one of the three cities up there called the Tri-Cities. So Ron Wright getting his eye busted on that WJHL in Johnson City meant a hell of a lot more to those people up there than it even did in Knoxville. So it was a tremendous angle. Uh, it didn't make any difference where it showed. It was going to sell out. And uh, I call it the Ron Wright eye busting show. I mean, I kind of gave it a nickname uh, because uh, when it was going to be uh, – sent around. And, uh, when it came back in, I think I labeled it then. Uh, so, uh, right living up there, it was really, really great for that market. It was probably the, he was the biggest wrestling star ever in that tri-city area. And for that reason, what happened on that TV show, like I said, it filled the building up uh, building held about 2,500. We had 2,500 in it. And in my opinion, this was the night that Johnson City became a great Tuesday night town because the building would rarely, after that night, ever have an empty seat in it again. We're going to put 3,000 and more than 3,000 in that building a lot of nights as time goes on. But this is the first one that really popped things, and we went to full houses wherever this tape went. Uh, we'll be, we will on many occasions in the future put as many as 3,000, like I said, in there. On Wednesday night, we returned to Whitley County High School up in Kentucky. This was our second show there. The gym was almost full, had over 2,000 fans. Thursday night, we were in Greenville, Tennessee, first time we'd ever been there. It was a really wild crowd in Greenville, Tennessee, about 2,000 there. And these TVs were advertised off of Johnson City television because they're up there close to Johnson City. We'd already discussed the Knoxville crowd on Friday. Saturday, we returned to the every other Saturday night down in Marstown. And it was practically full to 2,200 or so. Our week was a new record. 13,000 fans uh, saw Southeastern Wrestling live for a gross week of almost $40,000. Uh, the total payoffs were about 11,000. There was only 14 guys on those cards. Most of those cards for that entire week were just four-match cards. Uh, that meant that uh, you had an average payoff per man of $800. I wish I had jerked that figure up to see what that is in today's in today's thirty two hundred dollars, Ron. Thirty two hundred dollar a week. I mean, gosh, mighty think about that nineteen seventy-six. Uh, you you know, you could buy a lot of stuff in those days. I bought a Cadillac in nineteen seventy-six uh for six thousand dollars. So you could buy two weeks like that and you could buy yourself a brand new Cadillac. So uh eight hundred per man. Uh so just three weeks before we were only in the 500 range. So this angle had just popped business. Uh, we now had two hot tag teams. Uh, they were on fire. We had a Southeastern champion, Don Carson, that was on fire. Uh, we had heels with heat. And uh, that was the secret to wrestling success for territories all over the country in the 1970s is having great heat on your heels. Okay, Ron, now it is time 
I'm going to sit down. I'm going to lean back up against the old studs learning tree, going to get myself a nice glass of sweet tea, and it's time for the learning tree, Ron. Where are we going? Well, today, our learning tree today comes from a gentleman named Gene Gunderson. And Gene asked, uh, what was the worst riot that I was ever in? And I'm going to start this one with probably not the worst riot I was ever in. I want to start with the biggest riot I was ever in. And I was in a riot in Hiram B. Thorne Baseball Stadium in San Juan, Puerto Rico in 1971, in which uh, 5,000 fans, at least, of the of the 20,000 plus that was in the stands, 5,000 of them chased, uh, <laughs> chased Dale Lewis all over the baseball field, trying to kill him. And, uh, you know, there were thousands of people involved in that one. But luckily, no wrestlers got hurt or injured in it. But the worst and the most dangerous riot I was ever in was one in which I was the focal point of the crowd's anger, and I definitely got injured that night. There's no doubt about that. So uh, take us back to Thursday night, June 22nd, 1978, Panama City, Florida. Uh, we had opened Southeastern Southern Division in Pensacola on my 30th birthday on March the 3rd, 1978. With Andre and I, we had flown out of Nash- Knoxville and into Dothan, Alabama, to open up Southeastern Southern Division. And it was the old Gulf Coast territory that I had purchased from my cousins, the Three Fields Brothers. And it, that territory had been dead at this point for quite a while. And uh, I bought it in December of 1977. It, it had been offered, the territory had been offered to sale to several different territories. Uh, Jim Barnett and then Georgia was one of those territories. And Barnett even ran some shows in several cities in the territory, and for whatever reason, decided not to purchase it. But uh, I decided that I'd, I wanted it, uh, and uh, I felt like I had history there. My daddy was a big star there, had drawn uh, the 40,000 people in Mobile, Alabama for one match. You know, I knew people knew the fuller name. So our first night in Dothan, even with Andre on the card, was only about 1,500 fans. It's not before the summer ends. This is pretty amazing. This is in March before that summer ends, uh, seven, eight months later, we're going to put 5,000 fans in that building. Uh, It's amazing how fast we built that territory. Dothan was the strongest city in the territory. And business was so bad in some of the other cities that we were forced to give the fans their money back. And several of the first times that we tried to run because the crowd, there wasn't enough people there to even wrestle for. Uh, it's something I'd never experienced in my wrestling career before. I'd never seen towns that bad to where you didn't have enough people to even wrestle for. In fact, our first visit to Panama City in early March of 1978 was one of those nights where there wasn't enough fans there to even have the matches. So now we're into basically the summertime. We're into June in 1978. We built this town to where we're practically selling this building out. And uh, I'd left a very good crew in Knoxville to continue the success I was having up there in the Northern Division. And, and I hired my brother, Rob, to book, book Knoxville for me. I took the following baby faces with me to Pensacola in 1978. Bob Armstrong, Charlie Cook, Ricky and Robert Gibson, who were from Pensacola originally. You know, it was their home. And Mike Stollings. And I used some other popular baby faces in that area. One of them we mentioned today on TV, Greg Peterson. The son of Lee Fields, Ricky Fields, uh, Lee Fields' son, and the wrestling pro, Leon Baxter, who is one of the superstars. 
Uh, so when I go and take over down there, I'm going to use some of the guys there that can really get it done. Uh, so uh, the Hill crew that I took was David Schultz, obviously myself. And uh, David, obviously, is famous for slapping John Stossel for WWE. And uh, he could take care of business, and he had no fear. I took Don Carson with me. I took Eddie Mansfield with me. I took the assassin and assassin team of Roger Smith and Randy Colley. And I had little crazy wild Billy Spears manage them. And then I used some local heels down there named Eddie Sullivan, big star in that area. And Randy Tyler was another big star in that area down there. So Bob Armstrong and I worked together as bookers in Pensacola. Uh, I was going to be running back and forth between Knoxville and Pensacola to check on my business in the north and to work big shows up there every once in a while and then to work most of the shows on the southern end. Uh, Bob stayed there. He was focused on building Pensacola. Well, we both agreed early on that the Pensacola end was we were going to have to push the heels extremely hard to give us the growth that we needed to get it out of the red. That company had been in the red for years. It hadn't seen any crowds for years. And in order to get those crowds there, we had to have heat on our heels. And uh, that was going to make the fastest growth for us and make the biggest difference in the gates as quickly as possible as, as getting those heels red hot. And uh, we were able to do it, like I said, within three months. Uh, it was unbelievable. Within three months from March to the end of May, by the end of May, we were in the black. We were making money. It was unbelievable. Uh, I don't know that anybody had ever done it that fast in any territory that was as dead as that one was. By late May, as I said, we were we were doing good. and But we were doing good because we had the burning heat. We were having riots every night. I had never seen so much heat in the territory before. It was so bad I had to make the heels stay every night until the end of the matches to be there, to help protect each other. Whoever was out there in the ring when the riot started, and I say when the riot started, because we had them every night. It was unbelievable. We could have toned it down, but it was only the beginning of the summer, at the best time of the year. Both Bob and I, we wanted to see how much we could build this business before the end of the summer of 1978. So that brings me to the midsummer night, 1978, in uh, the regular Thursday night town of Panama City, Florida. And uh, it's a night I, I'll, I'll certainly never forget. David Schultz and I are in the main event against the brother team of Ricky and Robert Gibson. Uh, Ricky sadly has passed away quite a while back. And Robert's going to go on to tremendous fame, obviously, as a member of the Rock and Roll Express. Those two boys were extremely talented, and we were lucky to have them in our crew during that time frame. And on this night, we're in a building that's got no air conditioning. It's in uh, June. Uh, late June, it's hot. Uh, the crowd is filled up. At least three quarters of the building is full. We have a group of local policemen that had little knowledge of how to handle business and what, or and even less incentive to protect us. So not only did they not know how to protect us, they really didn't care if they protected us or not. And uh, that was who was in charge of our security. So obviously, we had no security. We had already had enough problems from the crowds there that we had barriers around the rings in the entire territory. So after the first three months, we started having these problems with the riots. We put these little simple barriers around there. We had those little heavy chrome standing metal poles, stanchions, let's call them, 
is set, separated by every about 10 feet all the way around the ring. And we ran a thin rope through the top of them. And uh, that was our barrier. Wasn't much of a barrier. Uh, certainly going to find out that night, not nearly enough. As I said earlier, Bob Armstrong and I were committed to burning heat on the hills. And on this night, I just basically went too far. I, I'm going to take the blame for it. I called David Schultz over to listen to the finish with me and the ref, who was Larry Bach, who was from Dothan, Alabama. And he he refereed also 90 miles north, south of there in Panama City. And uh, as I was telling Larry the finish, I, I could see the fear in his face. <laughs> He was, he was kind of like David ducking his head down, and uh, I could see that he's thinking, "Oh gosh, man, what this is horrible! How are you going to really do this?" You know. So uh, he was just scared hearing it. So you know, I, I knew that hey, this is this is pretty far out there. Schultz, on the other hand, he didn't know the meaning of fear, man. He never batted an eye as I laid the whole finish out. He's like, "Oh hell yeah, Rod, this is good." Yeah. <laughs> so it was a little too good. Uh, then sent the finish with the referee. I had Larry Brock go up, to, which was customary. He carried the finish, and he went from our dressing room in the back of the building up to the babyface's dressing room in the front. And he sat down with Bob. Bob listened to every finish because Bob was learning to book, and he was learning finishes, and, and uh, he was a tremendous student of the game. And the Gibson brothers. He sat down there with Bob and the two Gibson brothers. So uh, Bob, <laughs> and about the... Less than five minutes later, Brock comes back to the dressing room. And uh, <laughs> because, uh, uh, you know, and, and I knew we were bringing the same event back two weeks later. So I wanted to sell the darn building out. And so Brock comes back and I say, uh, yeah, everything cool. And he goes, no, he said, Bob said, he sent a message to you. And I said, yeah, well, what did he say? He said, he said, to quote him, he said, do you guys want to die? You know, <laughs> I was like, oh, I think me and Schultz had a little laugh about it. Oh, our guy. So, uh, you know, I, I wanted to sell the building out. So I sent him back with a message to Bob. I said, tell Bob, if you think it's too hot, have the baby faces and stay until it's all over. And if we need help, uh, not only will we have the heels to help us out, you guys can help us too. So luckily they did, but it was so bad they weren't even able to help us. So my heels knew that staying over, until it was all over, it was the normal routine. Uh, but sadly, I didn't tell them what the finish was. If I'd have told them what the finish was, it might not have been as bad a riot as it turned out to be because uh, they would have been outside the dressing room uh, rather than inside when it started, and they would have been expecting it, and uh, they would have got there sooner. So as hopefully everyone can see from what I've said here, this riot, was entirely my fault, and I have no problem in taking the blame for all of it. So when the bell rang for the main event, Schultz and I went to the ring first. Gibson brothers arrived to a tremendous cheer. They were big fan favorites, and as they entered the ring with their wrestling jackets on, Schultz and I attacked them, and we ripped their jackets off. We threw Ricky out of the ring onto the floor, and uh, we opened up old Robert's head, and we had him bleeding, and he hadn't been in the ring 30 seconds, and he's bloody. And then he was bleeding pretty badly, too. And then, uh, you know, Schultz and I stepped out of the ring. Uh, we left him in the ring bleeding, and Ricky got back into the ring, and he went to check on his brother. And, uh, you know, that was about the time the announcer did his job. And, you know, he the announcer was so, you know, he had to back off when we jumped him. He didn't know what to do, and he didn't even announce the match. And then he went ahead and announced the participants of the match. 
but the bell hadn't rung or anything. So the referee helped Ricky get his bloody brother back to the dressing room. Uh, Schultz and I got back in the ring. Once they left the ring, we grabbed a mouser's microphone and uh, we declared ourselves the winners by forfeit. And the crowd went crazy booing. Naturally, they would, they would have no part of that. So a few minutes later, quite a few minutes later, it was a while. And we got to declare ourselves winner by forfeit three or four times. And every time we did it, they got, the crowd hated it worse. So a few minutes later, Ricky Gibson comes back with the referee. And he brings back with him the very popular Mike Stallings, who was a great young heel and he, who had already won a match earlier in the same night. Stallings was tying his boots as Ricky gets on the telephone. I mean, the microphone, uh, he grabs it from the announcer and he says to the fans, something like, my brother Robert's hurt too bad to come back out here. And I want to have Mike Stallings take his place. And uh, he handed back the microphone back to the announcer. And the crowd cheered, oh, boy, and the referee shaking his head, yes, oh, yeah, this is a done deal. And uh, so I went over and grabbed the microphone, and I said, uh, wait a minute, wait a minute. I said, uh, whose names are on the contract for tonight's match? And um, I said, I asked Ricky. Ricky's standing there looking at me. I said, is it yours and Robert's on the contract, or is it yours and Mike Stallings on the contract? And the announcer gave the mic to Ricky. And Ricky said, uh, uh, well, it's Robert and I. And uh, so Schultz took the microphone from the announcer and he says to Ricky, uh, well, I guess uh, you're going to have to do this by yourself if your brother can't help you. Uh, if you're not too scared to face the two of us, uh, that's that's the only way you're going to you're going to have a match tonight. So the crowd went nuts booing, man. Uh, they, and then I got the mic from Schultz and said, or, or you could just forfeit the match and save yourself some blood yourself. And uh, you're bleeding. You, we're going to get you bleeding, too. And uh, and we can all go home early. Well, now the crowd really did like that. They're not going to even get to see the match. They're really going crazy at this point. So uh, Ricky gets together, and he pulls in Mike Stallings, and the announcer gets in the corner, and the referee, and they got their heads in the corner, and they discuss it for a couple of minutes, and they realize that, you know, there's no way out of this. So Stallings goes to the dressing room, and the announcer announces the match, and uh, and Stallings, once Stallings leaves, and uh, Ricky realizes, the crowd realizes finally that Ricky's going to wrestle both of us by himself. So referee rang the bell, and Ricky, I mean, he tore into us. Uh, the crowd loved it, man. I mean, he bumped us all over the ring, threw us out of the ring, came out and threw us back into the ring. I mean, Ricky was a great worker, and we made him look really strong because, you know, we know what we're going to do in the finish, and, and um, we, we want him to look good. So he after about seven or eight minutes, he tired himself out to where we took over on him. And it wasn't long before we opened him up. He's bleeding too. And, and now, uh, you know, his brother's left bleeding, and now he's in there bleeding bad himself. And we pounded him unmercifully. I mean, hit way, way more than we should have. But uh, we were we were in a glorified moment, I guess. I guess you call it something like that. You, you just said uh, you have things going so good, and the crowd is just so into it. The ringsiders began to stand up, and uh, they came to the ropes that were around the ring, the barrier, the little barrier. Uh, the four local policemen that we had hired, they finally came from the front of the building. They finally came from the front of the building bound to the ring, and they tried to control the crowd a little bit. Man, Schultz and I, we just went on with the slaughter. I mean, we just beat him up, and he's bleeding like crazy. So the bleacher, people in the bleachers got up, and they began to leave the bleachers, and they began to fill the aisles coming down toward the ring. Uh, policemen were obviously losing control. They, they never had any control of the crowd. 
Schultz and I pressed on with the beating and the, and the blood. And uh, I had Ricky down on one side of the ring, and the fans in that ringside section turned over the chrome stanchion used as a barrier, and they forced their way up to the apron of the ring. Probably 10 or 15 fans were pushed with their stomachs up the apron of the ring. And they were obviously trying to protect Ricky. They reached out and they grabbed his foot. I had him over there on that side of the ring. They grabbed him by one foot and they drug him out of Schultz and my, we both were beating on him and they drug him out of both of our hands. They were serious about getting him out of the ring and uh, to safety, basically. And they drug him out to where the chairs were in the front row and the four policemen had disappeared by this point. We weren't going to see them again that night. They didn't even pick up their money after the matches were over. That's how scared they were. They left the building. So uh, Ricky, being the consummate pro, he wasn't going to allow them to mess up the finish. So he fought away from these 10 or 15 people, and he fought his way back up close enough to the ropes that I reached through the ropes and grabbed him by the hair of the head, and I drug him in the ring, and Schultz and I continued to beat on him. And again, the same section of ringsiders, but this time it doubled. There was probably 20, maybe 30 people in that section that came to the edge of the ring, got him by the leg, and they drug him out again. So when they did that, they drug him back from the ring, maybe about six or seven feet or so. And I stepped through the ropes on the apron of the ring, and I stretched out my old long body and far enough that I could grab a handful of his hair again. And that's when it happened felt this red hot burning sensation on my right forearm and I saw the blood shoot out. Uh, you know, uh, I'd been cut. <laughs> I knew I'd been cut, but it didn't stop. Uh, I mean, it would have been one thing if I'd have been smart, then I said, okay, I need to stop this. We need to go to the dressing room, but oh no, I just drug him on back up in the ring and started beating the hell out of him again. So, <laughs> and, uh, I never let him go, drug him back in and we continued. Uh, then from the front of the building came a big roar from the crowd as Robert hit the ring. He had a bandage, his head bandaged with a half of a towel uh, wrapped around his head and the blood was all running through the towel and he banded his head up as much as he could and he tore into both Schultz and I. We gave him the, probably the best comeback of his entire career, no doubt. But Ricky got to his feet and he joined in and Schultz and I gave them as much time as necessary to beat our butts, man, and hopefully take some of the heat off us so that we could just make it out to the floor. So I just, I said, I, I started looking around then. Uh, the entire ring is this, you know, there's no place to exit the ring. You can't get out of the ring because the crowd is pushed up to the ring. So it seemed like everybody in the building was pressed against the ring. The four aisles of the ring were filled with fans, crazy fans. And, um, so we stepped out on the floor, finally pushed a few people back as far as we could and uh, enough for us to get onto the floor and start in the direction of the dressing room. Schultz picked up one of those fallen chrome stanchions that had been just thrown down by the crowd and they raised it above his head in kind of in a threatening manner to, to begin to create some kind of path toward the dressing room. And it was about that time when, when I was behind him and I was focused on him and the way out. When somebody hit me from behind with a chair at the top of the head, I knew that I had another cut at that point. You know, I could tell that that would cut me too, but I didn't sell it. Obviously, I just went on fighting people. And by this point, we're pushing people back. And uh, and I just started, uh, you know, you start punching people. You don't know what else to do at this point. 
and uh, chairs are flying. In a ride like this, it's unbelievable because uh, people, some people will fold their chairs and just sail them through the air. And uh, so chairs are coming from everywhere. And we're surrounded by a mob of fans that are trying to cut us and kill us. And uh, so it was about this time that the cavalry came from the dressing room. <laughs> they entered the fray. So here come the boys out of the dressing room. And, and I could see them coming out. And they, they charged the flank of the mob. <laughs> they started the backside of them. We're on one side of the mob and they're on the other. And they started, uh, and I mean, just nailing bodies and just it, it became pandemonium. Schultz was swinging that stanchion by then and he was forcing the crowd back as much as possible. And I was doing my best to protect our backs, to make sure that we didn't get a knife from behind or something bad like that. And the boys from the dressing room, they were just destroying people. And, you know, I realized uh, in this riot that it's almost like sometimes in a riot that it's everything stops to slow motion. It slows down and you see things and you get back to the dressing room and you go, wow, I saw you do this and I saw you do that. So it's amazing what you can see uh, in an out of control riot like that that you can remember later. It's almost like time stands still when it's going on. I saw Roger Smith grab a guy by the back of his neck and the seat of his pants, and they fired him head first through the tiny little space between the seats on an empty bleachers. Now, it was, the bleachers were empty at this point. All the fans are out of the bleachers, and they're trying to kill us. And he shot him through the seats, and the guy disappeared head first, and I heard him hit, he hit head first the concrete wall back there with his head behind the bleachers. You know, I'm sure he was unconscious, and I don't know how bad he got hurt. I saw Randy Colley knock two guys unconscious in less than 10 seconds, and I had to step over their bodies to get to the dressing room. Now, I remember that's the two guys that Colley knocked out. <laughs> Billy Spears, he looked like a killer. And only about 5'6 and 150 pounds. He was throwing bodies and clearing the path. Eddie Mansfield was choking two guys back by the dressing room door. The horrific sounds of the riot are just chilling. I mean, pandemonium is just everywhere. The baby faces were locked in the front side of the building, couldn't get through the crowd to get back there to even help us at all. So I was the last wrestler through the dressing room door after the crowd followed us as far as they possibly could get. And when I came through the door, before I could even close it, and I closed it as fast as possible, six open knives with the blades open came through the door and bounced off the walls of the dressing room and slid across the concrete floor. We went and counted them. and just. Dang, there's six open knives here, man. So uh, we kind of checked each other out for possible injuries, and luckily I was the only one that got hurt. So after about five minutes, the building quieted, and I couldn't help but crack the door and look out at the results. You know, I, I'm the promoter here. I'm the guy that's going to get the lawsuits, and I suddenly wished I hadn't opened the door. I mean, there was bodies laying everywhere, and all I could think about was the lawsuits that was going to be coming from this one. You know, so uh, thanks again, uh, Mr. Gunderson, for for your great question. You know, <laughs> I hope I answered it for you, but uh, it was definitely the worst riot that I was ever in. And, and, and Ron, and I Ron, do believe I do we have a super stud cast that's devoted entirely to uh, riot stories. Isn't that correct? Yeah, we do. Uh, uh, actually, super stud cast number nine has uh, at least 10 or 12 uh, crazy riots that I was a part of in my career. So, you know, uh, fans are interested in that type of thing. You know, if they'll look up that super stud cast, there's some, there's some crazy stuff in there. Uh, riots are extremely dangerous, and people do get hurt, and I'm I'm one that did. 
So I guess the inevitable question, Ron, is how bad were you hurt? How many matches did you miss getting back into action? And, and did you end up paying for uh, fans' injuries? Well, I had 22 stitches uh, in my arm, inside and out. So about uh, 10 inside and 12 outside. Uh, that was from the knife or the blade. It could have been a blade that cut me. I, I also had 15 stitches on, in the top of my head where the chair got me. But I didn't miss a single match. Not a one, including the very next night in Dothan, Alabama. It wasn't the type of thing that guys missed matches for. Stitches is nothing. You just go on and do your thing. So I, I never missed a night in the ring. And, uh, and the most amazing part of the deal was uh, I never got a single lawsuit from that entire riot. Uh, that was truly amazing for me. And there's one other thing I'd like to add to this story. And I have heard since that one of the People that wielded the knife or the blade that cut me was a member of Ricky and Robert's family who was, they had a bunch of family members that night sitting in the first row of ringside and they may be the ones that ended up cutting me. <laughs> Strangely <laughs> enough. They were protecting the family honor, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> As we begin to wrap up, we can invite you on Facebook to simply like the uh, Ron Fuller, the Tennessee stud page. Automatically you're connected with a legend on Twitter, Ron Fuller Welch. Our next Super Stud cast, part one, is now available, number 26, and it features uh, an interview, as I mentioned earlier, with Ron's first Lord Humongous, Jeff Van Camp, coming soon. In part two, it's the second Lord Humongous, a gentleman named Sid Vicious. So, Ron, where are we going next week? Well, we're returning to Knoxville just two days after that Friday night, February 13th. We're there on the 13th. Two nights later, two afternoons later, actually, on the 15th, we're going to be back in the ring again in Chilhowee Park. It was the quickest turnaround of a Knoxville card in history, just two days later. Two matches in three days, basically. So the surprise return of Tanaka had made that possible. I mean, people freaked about this Tanaka thing. So suddenly there were two tremendous angles working at the same time in Southeastern. Wrestling fans all over the Southeast were buzzing about what was happening during this time frame. Jeff, I, you know, I'm really excited about next week's learning tree. I want to give fans a little uh, upper on idea of what I'm going to do next week. Uh, I had a great question, and here it is. Uh, had the attempted coup by the Knoxville Five not taken place in 1979, could you have possibly partnered with Jim Barnett or purchased the Georgia Territory? And then the questioners, asked me this because he he said, I'm trying to envision how different wrestling could have been today if Southeastern had gotten control of WTBS in Atlanta, the first satellite national cable television station. Could it have possibly halted Vince McMahon Jr.'s march to dominance in wrestling and wrestling's future? That's a great question. I'm looking forward to answering that one. And I want to thank everybody today, man, that who's ridden with me today, as always. And, and I hope you saddle up again next week. And uh, may God bless us all. Okay, for Ron Fuller, the Tennessee Stud, and for our producer, Sweet Lou Kippelman, I am Jeff Bowder. And again, I would encourage you on the Arcadia Network to check out my show with Barry Rose, Breaking Kayfabe with Bowder and Barry. And until next week, with the Stud and when the ride continues. Thanks for joining us today for this historic Studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.
Ron Fuller's Studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network.